ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report with me, Norman Swan, on Gadigal land. And me, Tegan Taylor, on Jagera and Turrbal land. Today we're going to take our first foray into the debate about the voice referendum, the referendum on the voice to parliament, and the argument that there is strong evidence that the voice is a health issue and you can expect tangible benefits. And a closer look at one facet of Indigenous health through the story of a community in remote Western Australia. Yeah, it's a very moving story on a a dialysis service and people with renal failure having to leave country. Mm. But let's get back to the voice. In about two months' time, we'll vote to change the Australian Constitution in order to recognise First Nations people through a voice to Parliament. The debate on it has become fraught, and some argue that what's been lost in the whole debate is that the voice is actually a health issue, with evidence that we can confidently expect tangible benefits. Two of the people who are proposing that and who should know are Professor Fiona Stanley, a past Australian of the Year, founding director of the Telethon Institute for Child Health Research in Western Australia, and a researcher into Aboriginal health for the last 50 years. The other is Donna Archie, who heads one of Australia's oldest and largest Aboriginal community-controlled health organisations, Congress in Central Australia, and is a proud Bundjalung woman. I spoke to them earlier. Well, welcome to you both. Thank you for joining us. I'm on Gadigal land. Donna, where are you speaking from? I'm on beautiful Central Aranda land in Alice Springs. And Fiona? I'm on, actually, on Wurundjeri country. I'd just like to acknowledge that I'm often on Noongar Butcher right. uh, in Western Australia. Donna, when we were chatting about this conversation we're going to have today, the first thing you said to me is you're sick of being consulted. What did you mean by that? Well, I think we've got a really good example in the Northern Territory whereby it's not good enough now to be constantly consulted and spoken to, but our voice is not heard. The need for the voice is really about establishing genuine, substantive and continued representation of the first peoples in the policy-making process. And we know, too, from our own experience, that if you give us a voice, we will make a positive change. So you're implying that consultation has been a ticker-box process rather than being listened to? Is that what you're saying? Exactly. Exactly. Too much of it. Too much consultation, too much talking. Aboriginal people have been saying for a long time what they need. What we need is a national structure that is enshrined in the Constitution so that it can be protected from becoming a plaything of party politics and being able to be dismissed at the whim of government. Now, you are, before I come to Fiona, you argue that the Northern Territory at the moment, in fact, is a case study that shows a voice-like mechanism can be successful and show results. Yes. There was a key turning point in the 1990s with the establishment of a strong Aboriginal leadership body in the Northern Territory. And we'd long advocated for a forum that would give us a voice, not just at the local community level through our Aboriginal community-controlled health services, but also at the table where big decisions on health were made. And... We finally won this argument and the Northern Territory Aboriginal Health Forum was established in 1998. And it's a place where the Aboriginal health sector and governments meet 
together and plan how to improve the health of our communities. It really laid the groundwork for many of our health improvements in the Northern Territory that we've seen since. It's not perfect. We don't always agree, Norman, but it does demonstrate what we had always said. When you have structures that are based on genuine Aboriginal involvement and leadership, you get better outcomes. And what data, I mean, what improvements have you seen are measurable? Well, we've seen in the Northern Territory life expectancy for Aboriginal men improved by nine years from 1999 to 2018. And for our women, the figure was just under five years. Now, if I can just take you back, Norman, to when the Central Australian Aboriginal Congress started, which was, we're turning 50 this year. Congratulations. Yes, big, big milestone for us. And at the time... Infant mortality, so that's the death of babies in the first year of life, was 200 deaths per live birth. It's now at 15. Per 1,000 live births. Yes. So those are amazing statistics. Fiona, Stanley, let's just get to the data which really impel this process. It's some years now, but you did, or the Telephone Institute in Western Australia, which you ran, did a groundbreaking study, which was the West Australian Aboriginal Child Health Survey, which really came up with incredibly disturbing findings. Just want to remind us what that came up with. Sure, I'd love to. Thank you. Well, we interviewed 5,300 Aboriginal children from every community in Western Australia, urban, rural, remote. Um, and it should and be said, this, these were Aboriginal sorry. researchers doing this research. Oh, yes, yes, of course. It was actually headed up by people like Ted Wilkes and, and Ken Wyatt before he went into politics. So they were very important members of our team and we had a commitment to appointing Aboriginal interviewers, um, Aboriginal health workers or people, and they've gone on to do good things, actually. It's a very good story. So there were 5,300 kids and 11,000 families. But what was so amazing, Norman, that we got a 90% participation rate. Now, we don't get that with non-Aboriginal people. So it was incredibly important because the Aboriginal populations in Western Australia trusted us to actually get change. And uh, wow, did we find things. So we interviewed the parents, we interviewed the children were aged 0 to 17. So the children over the age of 12 were interviewed and the teachers were interviewed. And then we linked the data, we got permission to link the data into our longitudinal databases in Western Australia. So we were able to check on things like hospitalisations and deaths and uh, contact with child protection and education and so on. Um, The thing that was most, I guess, anguishing was that between 40 and 60% of all APSIC regions in Western Australia had, by asking the kids and their parents, uh, were forcibly removed from family. That was the history they gave. And when you look at that impact, you could see that not only in that generation that where the children were removed and we had such terrible outcomes, but their children and their children So we got three, almost to four generational effects. And the effects were things like a doubling of mental health problems, two and a half times things like infant mortality rate, um, and even gambling and substance abuse was incredibly much higher in the group that reported removal. So when people say, oh, they should just get over it, um, you know, it's a different thing, 
the trauma, the intergenerational trauma has been documented by this study. When we took the results to Canberra, they refused to accept the data. We had to go back and reanalyse the whole lot um, and then show them that, in fact, it was a true level, both of removals, forced removals, it was truly a stolen generations, and the impact going down through generations. You, you've been in this game a long time. You've had a lifelong or a career-long commitment to improving Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health. And you've got a real beef about government policy, which is something that Donna was referring to, which is one of the arguments for the voice being enshrined in the Constitution is that it doesn't allow governments to change the very core concept, which is that you need a voice. And you've, you know, you've seen examples where government policy has really worked against Aboriginal health when things looked as if they were going well to begin with. Oh, absolutely. Um, there are several, this huge number of examples, but I'm going to give you two different kinds of examples. There are two reasons why government policy has not closed the gap. And the first big reason is that they have funded without consultation, even, you know, no consultation, but, you know, with inappropriate consultation, um, they have funded programs which are not only useless, but harmful. Such as? And they cost a lot of money. The best example, Norman, is the Northern Territory Intervention, introduced again by John Howard in 2007. It was a hugely expensive, punitive intervention. It was addressing the Little Children a Sacred Report, which of course is about child sexual abuse in the Northern Territory. They sent in the army. They took away the self-esteem and the power of Aboriginal people to look after their families. In many of the communities, it was an absolute disaster. And for every year, Following that intervention, and it was continued by Labor, child sexual abuse went up every year. Now, where's the evaluation of that government program, which cost so much money and was so very, very harmful? And the second example is equally bad. Um, Donna's made the point about Aboriginal control being so very effective in terms of uh, trust of services and effectiveness of services. And I've got example after example after example of that all through the 50 years of research I've been doing in this area. But one of the most anguishing examples, again, is where the government does not fund or defunds the very Aboriginal control programs which are working so beautifully. And the most horrible example of that, the anguishing one for me, is that there were 75 Aboriginal community controlled family and child centres across Australia, 75 of them. You know, things like Bib Willem in Victoria, June Oscar's program in the Fitzroy Valley. They were run by Aboriginal people. They were much more than childcare. They had culture, language, domestic violence, nutrition, health. They were centres of cultural strength. And because they knew what they had to do for their kids, they were incredibly successful, including kids being more ready for school. Year 12 rates went up in Victoria, dramatically associated with the, these programs. And in 2015, thereabouts, Scullion, Birmingham, Turnbull and Abbott decided that they would defund these programs. So now when you look at all of the communities and Dutton goes to Alice Springs and says, oh, there's all this child sexual abuse, there's all this horrible behaviour. Well, that's because these early childhood influences were completely wiped. Now, we know the evidence for early childhood. You know it as well. The population who are listening to this program will know about the amazing evidence of early childhood services, but they were actually breaking the intergenerational trauma. So those two examples are the main reasons, in my opinion, why governments, successive governments, have not closed the gap, because they do not 
understand the context in which Aboriginal people are living and working and playing and having culture and doing all that stuff. So Donna, a recent example of what some would argue is a failure of policy is on alcohol controls in Alice Springs, where, as far as I understand it, Congress and community-controlled organisations warned the Northern Territory government not to lift those controls, and yet they did. And you've described that there are processes that work quite well in the Northern Territory, but despite that, they got into real problems and having to reinstitute them in Alice Springs. The critics are saying, well, what's the guarantee that even if you've got a voice enshrined in the Constitution, even if you're taking advice from Aboriginal communities that's well-sourced, there's no guarantee it's going to be listened to? Well, I'm not sure about that, Norman. I think that if the voice was in place, I genuinely believe that the Stronger Futures legislation on alcohol wouldn't have been lifted. That is my firm belief given the data that was showing about the reduction in alcohol-related harm, preventable harm, of what it was before the tap was um, turned on. I genuinely believe that they wouldn't have lifted it, to be honest. The other, I think, important point here around what Fiona was referring to around the importance of Aboriginal community-controlled services, the Aboriginal community-controlled health services gave our people a voice on health matters at a local level. And they also spoke up against inappropriate and discriminatory services. So I think collectively where you see this network of Aboriginal community-controlled health services across the country that can then feed into a national peak body like NACHO that can then be complementary to the voice at a national level. What you're saying is the structure is there to enact and move forward. Exactly. I think it's complementary and I think that it will make a difference. I think that we can't lose sight of its primary goal, this First Nations voice to Parliament. It is a practical, positive difference to the lives of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And I genuinely also believe that it will make Australia a fairer and more inclusive nation. And I suspect that most people listening know that there's such a thing as community-controlled health organisations in Aboriginal communities, but they probably wouldn't have a clue exactly how they work. Do you want to just give us a a two-minute description of how they work? Well, if you look at Congress, we're an Aboriginal community-controlled primary healthcare service. We began in 1973 to be the voice on the rights of Aboriginal people in Central Australia. It wasn't until 1975 that the medical service started with a doctor, an Aboriginal health worker, a medical receptionist and and a transport service to now where we are a comprehensive primary healthcare service to 17,000 of the 18,000 Aboriginal people living in Central Australia. It covers a, a multidisciplinary primary clinical care, access to key medicines, key evidence-based social and preventative programs such as early childhood, maternal and child health, chronic disease, family support and therapeutic interventions like alcohol and other drug treatment programs. In some ways, it's the way you wish non-Indigenous general practice to be, multidisciplinary team-based care. Um, Fiona, Something I've broadcast on many times over the years, based on Michael Marmot's work, an expatriate Australian working in London, is this notion of locus of control, where he, just very briefly, tried to describe 
in his situation in the British civil service, why there was a health gap and life expectancy gap in the British civil service. And when you removed all the factors that make a difference, cholesterol, access to health services, education level, there was still a gap. And one of the significant things that actually reduced that gap or explained it was loss of locus of control, that people in the system where they lost control of their lives, created chronic stress, premature aging, and so on. To what extent do you believe the voice is a mechanism for returning locus of control, building on what Donna has just talked about? Oh, well, I'm just going to say that I strongly support what Donna's just said, but there's just been a recent report in the MJA earlier this year which showed that in the Launceston AMS, the outcomes for chronic disease were far better than the GP services in northern Tasmania. So you're right. I mean, everyone would like the kind of wraparound services that many of the AMSs provide. And people will actually, Aboriginal people trust them so much, they'll go across a whole city in Brisbane, for example, to go to the Aboriginal Medical Service, even though they might have a GP close by. So there's two aspects, I think, about that locus of control. That is that Aboriginal people who are in control of their own services, and if they were properly funded, their self-esteem rises. So we've got a lot of data now, both from Canada and from Australia, to say that when there is Aboriginal control of services, the whole of the community's self-esteem rises. Things like suicide rates in adolescence fall. But the point I really want to make about the control is how effective these services are because people trust them. And the best example of that, which people don't know enough about, is how the Aboriginal network of health and other services worked across Australia to prevent the pandemic having such a devastating effect on Aboriginal people as it did on other First Nations people everywhere else. In fact, the Aboriginal population in Australia, amazingly, had six times fewer cases than we did. A six-fold reversal of the gap and they did it by engaging that network that Donna talked about. So you had Pat Turner, Nacho in Canberra, all the way down to community, and we had networks of partnerships across every state and territory where the, the Aboriginal Medical Service and the other services run by Aboriginal people, like the early childhood, you know, like the welfare services. I mean, they got all of the homeless elders off the streets. They closed communities, but they had to provide health services. They had to provide food. They had to provide medicines. How could they do this when there's such a high rate of chronic disease and poor living conditions in Aboriginal people? It's an extraordinary success story. Now, we couldn't get it published in the media, but it's an amazing story. And I think it went a bit off at the end when Morrison got the vaccine rollout wrong and they opened the communities too quickly. So when the voice was taken from them, they had a, a slight increase in problems. But, you know, this is an extraordinary world best thing because they had a voice. And there are these networks across Australia, not just in health, legal services, in birthing. We've just got the most wonderful data on Aboriginal birthing and what that's doing across Australia. So the networks are ready to go. All they need is to have is that voice. It's not going to be a lead camera voice. You'll be able to go right down a community and get people to say, this is what will work with us. The principles are the same, but it might be different for each community. And that's how it goes. Donna, the no campaign, I don't know what they would argue, but I suspect the no campaign would say, well, by proposing the voice and creating this divisiveness in the community, you're actually going to make Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health worse. What's your argument for that? Disagree. Absolutely disagree. Because what we've seen with a network of Aboriginal community-controlled organisations, including health services, I think without that, I think we would have a worse health status of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people across the country without it. 
I think the health status in the Northern Territory without the network of Aboriginal community controlled health services would be far worse. So I don't agree that it's going to be divisive. In fact, I think what it will do is bring people together. Fiona was talking earlier on about the wastage of of money that's gone to ill-informed, non-evidence-based, non-Aboriginal services. That won't happen and should not happen with a national voice if governments are going to listen to that advice, which they should. I don't see why they won't. It was interesting that they took notice during COVID, so there is a model for going with it. In the Northern Territory, in fact, we were the ones, combined Aboriginal organisations in Alice Springs, very early called for closing of the borders. And interestingly, I think it was that same week, they actually closed all of the Australian borders. So it sounded Mm. like we were just this fringe radical group that didn't know what we were talking about, which then became part of the norm not just in Australia, but internationally. So when we're looking at the social determinants of health, Aboriginal medical services were talking about that back in the 70s. And Norman, you were raising the control factor and Michael Marmot's work, and particularly around the social and economic issues, such as poverty, lack of access to quality education, inequality, unemployment, poor housing, all of these have a powerful influence on health. And I think that that's where the voice is also going to have a significant contribution to play. Thank you very much to you both. That's uh, been illuminating. Thank Thank you, Norman. Norman. Donna Archie is CEO of the Central Australian Aboriginal Congress in Alice Springs. And Fiona Stanley is Distinguished Professorial Fellow in Paediatrics and Child Health at the University of Western Australia. And this is The Health Report. One of the drivers of health problems that disproportionately affect Indigenous people is the Western diet. Balgo, also known as Wiramanu in Western Australia, is a community so remote it's home to people who lived in the bush until the 1980s and others who worked in cattle stations on rations. The strong contrast between eating bush turkey and kangaroo and the introduction of white sugar and white flour is in living memory and it's had an impact on kidney health in the community. ABC's Elsa Silverstein drove 10 hours up the Tanami Road to find out how diabetes and the need for dialysis has affected Balgo. We're Amanu, Balgo, a remote community in Kimberley. This is a Gibra country. Mm. What did you say? Gibra, Gibra country. Gibra country. Yeah, they Gibra everywhere. Driving out past their community, the sun is setting on the Tanami Desert. It's vast, flat country out here, dry grasses and low shrubs as far as the eye can see. I used to go hunting with my father. What would you catch? Uh, kangaroo, emiao, turkey, goanna. Eric Mora is in the passenger seat, holding a rifle when he sees them. They're about 100 metres away. Bush turkeys. Not many locals here have vehicles or gun licences. And today we're in the CEO of the community, Dave Whitelaw's car. He's a good fella. He always takes us hunting. Mm. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> and last year we went to Yaga Yaga, we got two kangaroos. True. Yeah, oh. last year with him. Two Malu. Malu. Nice. Yeah. Malu, big Malu. Yeah. Big. That was last year. We were... Eric's invited me to turn on my microphone for a reason. He says he's got something he wants people out there to know. Yeah. Today, people are getting sick. Some people go into dialysis, our families. And long time ago, they was fit, healthy. They was eating the pushtaka, like goana, turkey. Like, it's healthy. Kuka. Kuka. Yeah. Kuka, malu. He grew up in Balgo, but lives in Perth, where his partner gets dialysis care. And it can be hard for him to be away from country. Like, like if I go back to Perth, I won't be, I'll be missing this one. Well, I'll be missing all this pushtaka and back here, you know. Visit, go back, visit all the time. When your kidneys fail, often from diabetes too, dialysis machines do the kidneys' job and remove water and toxins from the blood. You've got to get treated two to three times a week and it takes around five hours each time. It means people in communities like Balgo with no dialysis care have to leave home to get the treatment that will keep them alive. Indigenous people in remote communities have one of the highest rates of chronic kidney disease in the world. So, Eric, your um, your family have to, who are on dialysis, do they have to go to Broome? Yeah, some of them in uh, Kananara, some of them in Broome. But they're from Balgo? They're from Balgo, yeah. They're from Balgo. Yeah. At this point, Eric's cousin Colin pipes up. He's been pretty quiet in the back seat most of the trip. That's your name? You. I've been helping my wife in dialysis, in Alice Spring, from Balgo. We went to Alice Spring a long way for dialysis. You are. Some of them. And that's my wife will... Your work. wife? Yeah. Your wife's on dialysis. Yeah, they've been finished. From dialysis, they all passed away. Yeah. That's my wife been yeah. passed away. Passed away. Oh. Yeah. My cousins passed away. Yeah. From dialysis. Yeah. Like From Balgo, we went all the way to dialysis. How yeah. long ago did she pass away? Yeah, um, when we get it here. Last year. Oh, no. Yeah, last year. Yeah, it was a really sad funeral, though, so oh, it was really that's a really sad one. That is really sad. Yeah. yeah. At the dam where some of Eric's nephews are swimming, he makes a little fire to cook the bush turkey. Young Sadei to come to. Let's go! Uh, get all the feather out. Ready to say to my families, get the guts out. Get the guts out. Yeah. Yeah. And like this. Got another one? Yeah. I caught it for him. Oh, nice. Boy, he's dead. We have to go right back to the bush. Back to my country, you know, to eat. Eric sees the cultural knowledge that was given to him by his father and grandfather and the old people in his community as key to keeping him healthy. When he's back home, he makes an effort to go hunting and catch food for his extended family. He's also got diabetes, but doesn't need dialysis. He drinks water instead of soft drink, 
and tries to eat well. And in a more reflective mood, he tells me about his concerns for young people, like all these kids playing in the dam. Hurry, hurry! Concerns that they don't have access to the same traditional knowledge he had that'll keep them healthy and stop them needing to leave country to get health care. Yeah, I'm worrying about that. There are future for this community. All the young kids around here. I don't want them to go sick. Like my people eat wrong thing, you know, sugar. Yeah, but we need to stop the coke, not to selling coke here in the shop too, though. Some of the older generation here worked on stations for white owners, unpaid, and were given rations of white flour and white sugar right up until the 1960s. The introduction of poor nutrition to Aboriginal people's diets who had lived on the land is well documented. It was the first time this population developed chronic kidney failure. And something called the epigenome tells us that diets of grandparents can lead to transgenerational genetic inheritance. Decades down the line, Diabetes, all that. That's why I eat pushtaka. I've been learned from old people when I was when I was a kid. I used to look them out. They was eating, you know. They used to go hunting. But today it's changed now because we got no old people here. So where are the old people that Eric talks about? <laughs> the next day, I meet Reese Cochilli outside the Edge Care Centre here. He's a smiley, gregarious younger presence at a breakfast table where his aunties, older women in his community, are having a cuppa. Yeah, I've been laughing with him. <laughs> They're the funny people. Yeah, yeah. So you sort of make the older people feel... Yeah, yeah, I make a laugh. Make a happy with them. I don't think I'm as funny as you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're the, they're the, funny, they're the funny ladies down here. Hey, Play with us all the time, every morning. Good day for us. Make, make them happy. He thinks he's pretty funny. Yeah. <laughs> we make us happy. We make laugh, us laugh, laugh too. Okay. Around the table, you can see the empty chairs of the people who've had to move away for dialysis. It's too hard, you know. We worry about them. They need to live in the country, you know. Francis Nanguri works at the Age Care Centre. And I cook breakfast for the old ladies, old people. She knows what it's like to have family members have to leave community for medical help. One of her sons is in Perth right now at a mental health facility. He's getting care after damaging his brain from petrol sniffing. Because the carers looking after him. Do you miss him? Yeah. And um, who's your family on dialysis? Uh, my two aunties. One feeling in a bed, she's in broom. And my other auntie, Kanana Dialysis. And my cousin, sister Elizabeth, in Ellisbring Dialysis. It's different, you know. In the town, it's different, you know. And they want to stay at home because it's their home. Frances tells me this word in her language. Manmal. Manmal. Mm. Yeah. It roughly translates to pain in your heart. Frances and Reese, Colin and Eric, everyone I talk to here has someone close to them living thousands of kilometres away to get dialysis treatment. 
1984, almost 200 years after colonisation, the Pindaby Nine were an Aboriginal family group that made first contact with their relatives in Kurikara, Australia's most remote community. They were living off the land in the Western Desert, surviving off strong cultural knowledge and unaware of European settlement. In 2000, locals from Kurikara were forced to leave their country and families for dialysis treatment. So artists from their communities, including the Pintaby Nine, made four enormous paintings, which were auctioned off at the Art Gallery of New South Wales. They raised enough money to start a remote dialysis care organisation called Purple House, and they've just got funding to bring dialysis to Balgo. The four-chair unit will be ready next year. But for locals here, it couldn't come sooner. I think it's good for families to come and to live in country. Yeah, I want my people to come down here, be happy and be strong, come back to home. Eric uses another word in language. Gurun means like feelings in your heart. Gurun. Like I don't feel like to go other place, I like to stay here. My feelings here. ABC's Elsa Silverstein there uh, in Balgo in remote Western Australia. And that's all we've got time for on this week's Health Report. See you next week. See you then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.